The host of this show, Max Naist, lived in addiction for years and made lots of destructive choices, which resulted in losing friends, family, and his career. After being in jail for the fourth time, he knew he needed to make some big changes. Now, sober for 17 years, he shares the steps he took, which led to recovery and got his life back. Welcome to Fearless Happiness. 19.7 million American adults have battled a substance use disorder. 38% of adults have battled an illicit drug use disorder. But no matter what the struggle, no matter the challenge, you can overcome anything and become successful. Max and his guests share experience, strength, hope, and faith. If it's PTSD or military-related, trauma, physical, verbal, sexual addiction, alcoholism, you can accomplish your dreams. And with this show, we help others be fearless in their pursuit of happiness. This is Fearless Happiness, and this is Max Naist. Good morning, everybody. This is Max from the Fearless Happiness Podcast coming to you live from beautiful Fallbrook, California. Sometimes I say that, sometimes I don't, but it's a gorgeous day. So, yes, I'm going to brag about my California weather to all my East Coast friends and Midwest friends. Um, today, we have a special guest, Angie Manson, correct? Correct. Um, so, what I like to do, Angie, um, is I have my guests introduce themselves and let the, let the audience know like who they are and, and exactly what they do. And then we're just going to have a great conversation today. Awesome. Well, my name is Angie Manson. You said it correctly. People really don't like that last name. So I always have to say no relation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm the CEO of a residential drug and alcohol programs in Northern California. We have two locations in uh, Santa Cruz and South Lake Tahoe. We're a holistic type of program. Uh, inside my program, I utilize CrossFit to help people in recovery. And so I also have a CrossFit gym on my facility. I also have a podcast that I'm a co-host on that I've been doing for over a year now. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've been in recovery for 27 years. This is all I do. This is all I know. This is my passion and purpose in life. I love it. Uh, that's why I was telling you earlier, like we have something in common. I'm coming up on 19 years clean and sober this year. And one thing that you said, like, I wish more treatment centers, like a couple of them that I worked at were really big on the fitness part too, you know, like incorporating that in their daily routine, but CrossFit, you know what I mean? Like any kind of exercise, you know, helps us recover quicker because it helps us, right. Put that feel good stuff in our brains, you know, the serotonin and the mel whatever I forgot what it's called. The but, dopamine, um, all that. The, yep. Yeah, the dopamine. Exactly. Because I always, you know, especially, you know, as a counselor myself, like if I, I, I'll get a client that says, I'm not going to do the 12 steps. And I'll say, well, I never asked you to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's figure out where you're going to go from here. I know you're going through detox. And then I'll, what I'll put it to them as is like, we're going to work on mind, body and spirit. And usually that's what go, they go, okay, I didn't hear program. I didn't hear NA. I didn't hear AA. I can probably do this, you know, and I've had some that ended up doing the 12 steps and they're still sober today, you know, a couple of years later. And, but, um, you know, yeah. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about, um, like some of the challenges, you know, in your recovery personally, early on, like that you went through to get where you are today? Yeah. Well, early on, I got into recovery, not by choice. I was facing 10 years in prison. I'd gotten myself in a lot of trouble. I was only 20 years old. 
And fortunately for me, the judge offered drug diversion. I think I was the first person in Reno they offered that to in lieu of prison time. And so I went through the program that my best friend did because I figured if she got sober, she was way worse than me, then I could like have a safe space. And, uh, and so I went through the program with no intentions of actually getting sober. I was in huge denial. I was 20. Like I just started. What, what was the problem? Even though I'm facing 10 years in prison. And so uh, luckily for me, you know, after a year of going back and doing everything I was supposed to, the judge kept me on probation for a couple more years and also wanted me to, uh, you know, pay this restitution for the damage I'd done. And at some point in those couple of years, the light bulb kind of went off in my head about, hey, I actually really like what I'm doing because I had to work at the treatment center. I needed to keep myself in a safe location or else I would end up in that 10 years in prison. And so the light bulb went on. I found my passion for helping others. And the funny thing is, I always liked helping people. I was always that girl who was like holding someone's hair, who was like making sure we grabbed their purse, who was like looking out for people. I was always that person at heart. So it kind of like resonated with me about, hey, why don't you take your past and help others? And once that light bulb went on, I've never looked back. At the end of the three years, the judge, uh, he, he let go of uh, the restitution. He wiped it away. He took away the felony that was over my head, gave me a clean record. Yeah, awesome. it was pretty cool. It was like getting pardoned by a judge. I mean, it was uh, amazing. And, and so having that momentum going forward and now being here for myself because I want to be here for myself right. has kept me where I am today. But it took a while. I really fought it in the beginning. Oh, I, I was stubborn. I get it. Yeah. You know, and, um, and it's funny that you mentioned that you faced 10 years. I was facing three years, right? And the judge was like, I'm done with you because only two places you're going are to a facility or to the state of California. And he, he, you know, I didn't do the diversion. I didn't do the Prop 36, if you remember that way back when. Yeah. Um, and then when I came back, he, I go, well, I was watching these people get a second and third chance. I go, where's mine? He goes, when you went on the run, you blew that chance, right? I'm like, oh, oh okay. Um, and, and, you know, what people don't realize in recovery or in addiction, like, you know, looking at that 10 years and like when I was going, like my example was my experience was, okay, three hots in a cot. I can do that. Right. Yeah. Cause I know how to do that. I, and I know I'll meet my friends there that I've been running the streets with and I'll get high in prison. Like, cool. Send me your honor. Like I was so beat up. I didn't care. Right. And that's sad that, that, that option you're like going, okay, cool. I can do that. Right. Yeah. But thank God I had a judge who gave me a third chance. Like, and even later in, you know, in my career, when I would go do um, progress reports with clients and stuff, like judge say, you had so-and-so as a judge. Yeah. You got a third chance. Like, how did that happen? Like, he's not known for giving second chances, you know, like, yeah, you know, and, and I'll share other stuff with you later, but you know, like tell people like the addiction part, like, cause there's a lot of my friends that listen to this. A lot of the audience who listens to my podcast that don't really understand, you know, like family members when they, they take junior to, to treatment and they say, okay, Angie, here's my son, fix him. We'll be back in 90 days. And you're like, nah, it doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you need to yeah. be involved, right? Share some of those 100%. stories, like in your early career and, and your early recovery, how, how that went. 
Well, for me, it was the opposite. My family wanted nothing to do with me. They're like, go figure it out on your own. We're, we're done. They, you know, I grew up in the era of tough love. So for me, my mom's tough love was you're 18, you're on your own. Don't talk to me again. And so I literally had to figure stuff out. And luckily for me, my grandma, um, she, she always, cause my mom had me very young. So my grandma stepped in and she's the one that paid for that treatment. Um, but they were as hands off as you could possibly do. And that's what I always knew. You know, I was on my own with, as a latchkey kid from 11 years old. So I, my family was never involved. They were never part of the process and it hundred percent squarely fell on me, which is what I needed. Right. But like now with my new program, uh, well, not new program, but with the program that I run, we 100% involve the families now from day one. They're talking to them in detox. They're yep. backing us up. They're, we're giving them updates so that the client can't feed them a bunch of crap and say, oh, this place is like a jail. You got to pull me out of here. Like we keep that connection going. And one of the first steps we have the clients do out of detox is rebuilding that trust with the family and being completely honest about their wrongdoings so that the trust can actually be rebuilt because without complete honesty, the family knows what's going on and the client knows what's going on. But until you can kind of bring those pieces together, they're just going to go back to the same environment and there will be no different result. So we 100% involve everybody from day one through their whole planning, including their discharge. Yeah. And I think that's of, of the utmost importance. If you ask my opinion as, as a counselor yeah. that have been doing this for almost 14 years now is like, I've had, you know, that happen where, Oh no, we'll come back when he's done. No, we're going to, we're going to get on a call every week. We're, we're going to start addressing all this stuff that went on with the family, you know, the therapy stuff I can't do, but like the recovery, like doing progress reports and then hearing the joy in the family, like, Oh, wow. There's wow. He's got what 20 days sober today. You know what I mean? And just all that stuff that goes with it. Right. You know? Um, and, and I know in my experience, when I, when I first got sober, you know, I'm sure like yourself, it was like, what am I going to do? Like, all I knew was how to stick drugs in my system. Like, yeah, I got to try hustle. to have, yeah, you know, yeah. I have to try to have fun without this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, this is foreign to me, um, yeah. you know, but I, I'm, I'm grateful that I get to meet people like yourself that have long-term recovery that are helping people out there, right? And the first thing you said is, yep, we include the families from the get-go to the end, and that's the way it should be. What are some of the struggles you have found, like, with your clients and their families that, you know, happen in treatment? Yeah. So, and I love this question because, you know, when we can get the family on board, there's an accountability piece on both parts because the families, a lot of them have been enablers. They're part of the problem. So it's really good to sort of work together. Like, Hey, when they come home, take all the alcohol out of the cabinets, get all those pills out of the cabinet. You know, you've got to like almost educate the families on how to support the loved one coming out while still holding the addict accountable as well for their right. actions and their curfews and their rules of living if they're going back to living in their house and that sort of thing. Right. And so for us, the, the only time we really struggle on helping the person is when the family gets soft, when the family gets reasonable, when the family says, well, they're a grown adult and they say they got it and I believe them. It's okay. They can leave early. Or, you know, they give them the, they give them the right. out when the family doesn't stand strong. There's no, no, 
not no hope, but there's very little hope that the addict is actually going to make it because the family's caving in to the person and then the person's just going to go back and continue their manipulative ways. And so it's a, Absolutely. it's a toxic relationship. And that's the one thing where I think we have the biggest failures when the family doesn't stay strong in their resolve to help the addict by yeah. being tough, which a lot of them don't like to be, or they don't know how to be, or they have their own issues. So they can't be. Right. And, and that's hard though. Sometimes when you, you know, you've been through there, like I've talked to a client, like, Hey, let's get your, let's say, let's get your mom or dad involved. And they go, no. And you're like, why? Cause I was shooting dope with them. You know what I mean? Like, and then you go, oh, okay, how are we going to figure this? Like, how are we going to get yeah. them all on board to be sober? Right. And, and you know, like you, for, for me, the best thing that ever happened was my mom doing the tough love when I was in jail the last time. And she looked at me from across the glass and said, you are no longer welcome at my home. If I see you, I will call the police. If my neighbors see you, I will call, they will call the police. What are you going to do? And right. And that, that's that one reality check you get where I'm like, wow, I know that had to have been hard for my mom to tell me that. Right. And I said, I don't know. And she cried and you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and then we, we, you know, I gave her 14 years of my sobriety before she passed away. So, you know, that's, that's what amazing. I like to try to get, you know, the people, the families that are involved, you know, and sometimes it's like hitting a wall, as you know, um, yeah. you know, I worked at a place where they did a four day family program, you know, from like a Thursday to Sunday. And, yeah. um, you know, it was about doing all what you're talking about. And I remember I had this dad, big guy, I think he was an officer or sheriff or something like that. And he was huge. He's like, why can't my son just say no? Right. So I told him, I said, look, look at it this way. Uh, I want you to go to the nearest, you know, and I'm in Orange County at the time. I said, I want you to go to the nearest train station, you know, the Amtrak. Let it come at you at five miles an hour. Put your hand up and stop it. And he says, no, it'll eventually bowl me over. And I said, OK, your son's addiction is the bullet train in Japan coming at you full speed. Could you stop it? And he went like it clicked. He goes, I get it. I get it now. And, you know, I, I think his son is still sober today. You know, they work together as a family. But sometimes, you know. We run into that wall where the families just don't get it. You know, like we are supposed to fix them and then send them home all perfect to mom and dad or the husband or the wife, you know, and, um, you know, and I know in my own recovery, I've struggled with stuff like to wrap my brain around things, you know, thank God I had mentors and stuff like that to help me explain, you know, the things we do, you know, like being of service and you know, going to meeting for me, going to meetings and stuff like that. And then eventually, you know, I had mentors that said, you need to start working out. You're going to become a fat pig if you don't, you know, because you look like you're on a seafood diet, you know, you see food. You eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yep. that was one of the best suggestions that I ever gotten. And then, you know, I, I try to stay as healthy as possible. You know what I mean? Like, but, um, yeah. well, and I love that. And that's why we put exercise, mandatory exercise as part of our program, because, you know, when, like when I went through the program, if you got sober, you got fat and unhealthy and you look like crap and you ate bad food and you smoked 20 cigarettes and cheap coffee, <laughs> like that was getting sober. So of course nobody wanted to get sober. Right. <laughs> I'll, exactly. I'll keep doing my meth. Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> at least when I do meth, I look good in my mind. <laughs> I was skinny at least. And so, you know, we really wanted to make healthy lifestyle a part of us getting people sober so that they have 
you know, 60, 90 days of working out and feeling good and getting those endorphins working again, getting their sleep regulated without the need of medication to go to sleep, without the need of medication to wake up, without the need of medication to stabilize their mood. Like we literally take everybody off everything and let their bodies do the work like bodies know how to do if you give them enough time and enough consistency your body and brain will rebuild itself and i think that's a problem with so many rehabs these days is their quick fix and and partly because that's what insurance wants to pay for is put them on a pill and send them on their way see they're fixed right that's not fixing somebody that's just putting a band-aid and now you're just giving them legal drugs like they're not sober you can't call them sober when they're on 10 different medications just because they're prescriptions right. by doctors. <laughs> and so, you know, you really got to give them enough time to get that process of getting their bodies and minds right. working right. And everybody who goes through my program, I would say 95% of them realize they actually like not feeling how they do on drugs and they can function in life without them and truly feel sober by working out and doing, making healthy habits and going to those healthy groups. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more because when I finally like made a decision, right. Cause I was on antidepressant for 10 years. Right. But it was, a, I went through a serious depression where like the, as the psychiatrist explained to me, she goes, your, your baseline went way up here when you did meth. And then yeah. when your body can't try to catch up and it wasn't getting there, you know what I mean? Like it had to but through exercise and eating right, you know, and, and just taking care of myself mentally, emotionally, and physically, you're right. Yeah. The brain, like I haven't been on any meds for two years and I feel better at 53 than I did like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Yep. And um, uh, what I wanted you to try to explain to the audience, right? Like, okay, here, for example, like, so say someone has, you said it's mandatory exercise, right? So like, how do you work around the people's issues? Like, say, for instance, I have a bad shoulder where I have no, it atrophied after a surgery, right? So I can't do any overhead unless it's a machine. Like, how do you work with them? Or if they're being, you know, resistant, like, Angie, I am not doing this. I don't want to do this. I've never worked out. Yeah. I'm not doing it. How do you work with the, those resistant clients that don't want to do that? Well, we also offer yoga and our yoga teacher does like mindfulness yoga. So it's really stretching the body, opening the lungs, working on your breathing, which backs up because we also uh, one of our cornerstones is mindfulness. So I really love that because you're teaching people how to use their breath, which is amazing for health. It's amazing for sobriety. It's amazing for triggers. Like it's really good. So we do offer yoga. If, if they're, they still can't function, we will walk with them for 45 minutes, but there has to be some form of exercise. And the cool thing about CrossFit is you can literally modify anything. Like people get very scared of CrossFit because you see these CrossFit (laughs) athletes and it's like, they're nuts. And they are like, it's phenomenal. They, They put, you know, four to eight hours in the gym every day. But the the whole point about CrossFit is it's functional fitness. Like, do you want to be able to sit down when you get older? Good. Let's work on air squats. Do you want to be able to, you know, reach for that thing up on the shelf? Good. Let's just, you know, do this, this kind of stuff. And I'm putting my hands overhead for our listeners. So there's, there's just many ways that you can modify everything just to get the body moving because nobody's coming into rehab fit. Like that's not addiction and fitness are not really synonymous with each other. (laughs) So we're literally building people up from day one just to get their bodies in condition, just to do life. 
Absolutely. And that's how I work. You know, I tell clients, I go, you didn't get here like overnight, like you didn't take a drug yesterday and now you're in detox. Right. So like your recovery is the same way. It's one step at a time. And, you know, early on, I have to admit, I was like the hardcore AA guy, like, if you don't do the steps, you're going to die. And and no, and they'd look at me like, wow, dude, you're, you're crazier than I am. Like you need to chill out. And, but you know, I learned over time that people's recovery looks different for each individual. Right. So I'm a big, whatever you tell me you're going to do, I'm going to hold you accountable to it. Like you're going to do it. And like, don't tell me you're going to do something and then not do it. Right. That'd be like me telling you, okay, we're going to have a one-on-one today. And then I go to your room and I say, ah, we're not going to do it today. You're going to get mad, obviously. Right. Um, you know, and I just, I love the process of recovery, especially, you know, of course I'm biased. I'm a recovering addict myself, but I love watching the lights come on. You know what I mean? Like, and, and some of it is through exercise and I'll give you an example. So I had, um, I had, uh, a client who was a army vet, you know, really bad PTSD from, mm-hmm. um, from Afghanistan and, and Iraq, you know, wartime and one of the biggest things that kept him going you know besides the emdr therapy was knowing that he could go to the gym every day at the place that we work you know they had a gym either they took us or they took them or in one of the where they did the iop there was a little gym that they could work out in right and then they brought in a trainer if you wanted a trainer they would bring in a trainer they would teach you you know nutrition and all that stuff and he ended up calling me you know for two years sober saying you know thank you for pushing the emdr like as gently as you did, but it was like almost every week you did that. He goes, but I can sleep yeah. now. And I told him, I think it's because you did the work. You exercised, you started going to meetings, you, you did the work, you know, in your brain. And um, you, I just love watching the lights come on with people when they just like, like you, you probably see it all the time where they just go like this sober thing is pretty damn cool. You know what I mean? Like, it's not as scary as I thought. Yeah, well, and I think you hit the nail on the head in so many different ways. First of all, there is no one size fits all, you know, that's why we need like diversity. And I like you, I was very, you know, prone towards what got me sober, but I've realized that in and this just comes from experience, where there's many different ways to get there. Um, And it's also just, you know, it's not just about being sober. Like, I think that's the big misnomer. It's like, it's not about being sober and just white knuckling it and being scared and having a miserable life. Like it's all about learning how to live life and love life and laughter and doing it in a way of sobriety. And I think that's where like the true happiness comes from, because I know for me back in the day, way, way back in the day, when I go to a meeting and these people are like, you know, I've got 10 years sober, but my dog died. I lost my job, but I'm still here. And I'm like, dude, like being sober looks miserable. Why the hell do I want to be sober? Like, forget that. Go have a drink. You you, you look pissed. So, you know, I want to, a big part of what we try to do is teach people how to have fun sober, because when you've used drugs or alcohol for so long to have fun, you literally got to learn how to have fun without it. And then once yeah. you do, you realize like, oh, I actually remember that concert. Oh, I actually remember this. Oh, I was fully part of that. This fun right. is actually way more fun than the fun that I used to ha- think was fun. And so I think that's a big part of it. It's not just about getting sober. It's about kicking ass in life. Absolutely. And, and that's why I'm grateful for the guys that I hung around with early on. They were like, dude, take 
take your recovery serious, but don't take yourself so serious. Go have fun. Right. And we would go on yeah. camping trips, like whitewater rafting trip. I think I went, uh, skydiving twice and, you know, early on and yeah. just had, you know, had fun and hung around people that were barbecuing every week. So I, I get that. It's like, you know, you can't be so serious all the time. I don't care if you're a recovery or not, you know, in life in general, as right. you know, like if those people that are so serious, you're like, dude, it's okay yeah. to smile, bro. Like it's really not going to hurt you to smile a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, and I think we're seeing more of that, unfortunately, because of the last two years with mental health being, uh, you know, so in the dumps due to what everybody's gone through, but every, these same exact principles will apply to that as far as, you know, absolutely. tools and getting out and being around a community of good people that, you know, I think that's important. And I think that's what was sort of taken from a lot of people. And we got to teach them how to get back into life. Absolutely. And, you know, for us who are in long-term recovery, that's what we learned. We just went and hung out with people that were doing the things we wanted to do and had fun with it. You know what I mean? It's not all serious and, oh, I got to do this every, you know, be, but um, that's, uh, yeah, you hit that nail on the head, right? Um, what I like to ask a couple of my, or a couple questions that I like to ask my guests, right? As you can see, I put fearless happiness, right? Why am I happiness? So I'm going to start with fearless so yeah. being in long-term recovery, right? I know you went through some stuff along the, in, in all these years, right? So what does fearless mean to you and how does that show up in your life today? For me, fearless is going forward, even though I don't know if what the, it, the result's going to be good. You know, I don't freeze. I continue to fight, 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 fight. That's why I'm here 27 years later. It's just all about perseverance and just stepping into the unknown and taking those brave steps and just always moving forward. Because if you're not moving forward, you're going, you're sliding back down that hill. So for me, it's always been just marching forward, regardless whether I was 100% knew it was going to be the right thing or wrong thing, but always making some decision and going forward without fear. Yeah, bingo. Did you hear that audience? Just do it. Don't worry about the outcome. Just do it. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're going yeah, to actually... be the right choice, but at least you're living that whatever comes next, as opposed to wondering and worrying and was it right? Or should I have done this? It's like, I don't want to live with any regrets. I'd rather make a wrong decision than fix that than no decision and be stuck. Absolutely. And then kick yourself in the butt because I didn't make that decision. Right. At least right. whether I, if I make a decision and I fail, at least I know I made it. But I, there's a lesson I get to learn, right? Which, you know, you want to call it the universe, God, or whatever. There's always a lesson in anything we do that we need to learn, right? And uh, like my friend says, he says, lean into the suck because sometimes there's a lesson you need to learn. And sometimes there's a lesson within that lesson. So don't be afraid, right? Will we ever become fearless? Probably not. But the ones that are strong are the ones that go, I'm scared, but I'm going to do it anyway. Like Angie. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, and I had to, as a leader of a group, you know, I have a hundred employees and we had to like, you know, prime example, navigate COVID in healthcare in California. And it's like, you know, I still had to help people. I still had to have my people help people, even though we were scared, even though we didn't know what was happening, even though all this people needed us more than ever. And we had to be fearless and help as many people as we could. Right. Because, you know, you saw the statistics when COVID hit, right? Like drug use went up overdoses oh, yeah. went up. That's what they don't yeah. talk about. They think people die. No. More people still die every day of an overdose than they do. Well, COVID, you know, whatever COVID has did. done 
Exactly. Oh, it drives me crazy. Yeah, this this fentanyl is taking people out left, right, and center. Young kids who don't even know they're taking fentanyl, they think they're taking like an, uh, you know, a Xanax or something, and they're dying. Yeah, those numbers so overshadow what's really happening with COVID, and it yep. sucks because we are losing a lot of people due to the overdoses. Exactly, and and it breaks my heart. You know what I mean. Yeah. And that leads me yep. into the next one. So happiness, I put a wine there for a reason. So I, I'm, I wrote a book called fearless happiness, my addiction, my battles, my recovery, and I put a wine in it for a reason. So I want to ask you knowing the why's there, what does happiness mean to you? And how does that show up in your life? For me, happiness is balance. It's having I'm working hard on my body. I'm continuing to work on my mind. I'm working. I'm around friends, family. I'm having a good time. I'm just moving forward and continuing to better my life. You know, I think a lot of people, I don't want to say they get complacent, but it's like, I'm sober, I'm good. But it's like, no, it's a lifelong journey. Like you can keep getting better. You can keep pushing harder. I mean, that's why I'm doing 75 hard again. Like I got to keep putting myself in uncomfortable situations because what used to be uncomfortable is now comfortable and I don't want to get complacent. So how can I challenge myself more? How can I do more? And it releases those dopamines. Like when you do something you've never done or you tackle something you never did, or you accomplish something you didn't think you could do, you feel good. And so for me, that's happiness. That's awesome. You know, and that's funny. We remember we were talking earlier before we started the podcast about the, the network I belong to, right? Like apex. And we were yeah. talking about that. Right. And they have taught me and doing 75 hard myself, right? Reading the 10 pages of personal development. So one of the books that I read, right, was yeah. Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And Best book yes, ever. Yeah. right. That dude is yeah. extreme. Like he loves yeah. living like in that pain, but I got it. You know, this year I really get it with all the stuff that happened at, you know, getting laid off at the end of the year last year, some things that happened this year, you know, deaths in the family. Like I get what they mean about when I'm comfortable being uncomfortable, it's when I grow. That's when I, I learn. I, I, I start developing skill sets. You know what I mean? Like, like now, like I'm not afraid to try something different. You know what I mean? And, and that's what makes me happy. Yeah. Am I a David Goggins? I'm not saying that. Right. But I will put myself in those positions where I'm uncomfortable and in pain and going like, why did I do this? But then at the end, I'm, I'm glad I did it. Right. You feel so and I'll good. Tell you, yeah. Well, and I tell you why, because then I get to have a great guest like Angie here, right? If you would have asked me this 18 years ago, I would have said, Angie, whatever you're smoking, you need to pass it my way. Or you know what I mean? Because that ain't <laughs> happening for this guy. Right. And I think, you know, yeah. learning how to better myself every day, you know, there's a guy that belongs to Apex that his, his quote is small steps forward daily, right? Not backwards but small steps forward daily. And that's what I try to do one foot in front of the other. And, and I get to live a great life. You know, it's, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Right. But I get to at least work on those things when I see where I need to work on. And, you know, like I said, I get to have a great guest like Angie come on and share her story and her wisdom. Um, so before we part, I would like you to, if the people, if people need help, right. How can they reach you? If, if a loved one needs to go to treatment or they just want to, you know, work with you, how would they get a hold of you, Angie? So our website is elevaterehab.org. You can get 24-7 help there. If you need help immediately, we'll help you. We'll get you where you need help. If you want to reach me personally on Instagram, I am Angie period at period elevate. 
can't use at signs. So uh, you can DM me there, friend me there. Um, I communicate all the time. Uh, my podcast is also on the website if you just want to sort of hear about what the program is like. Uh, but any of those ways you want to reach me, I'm pretty easy to get to. I'm always responsive. You know, this social media, it's all kind of, I don't want to say it's new. I've been on Facebook since it opened, but right. utilizing it to help others. I'm all, I'm all over it. And I'm, I'm always available. And I'll always, that's my purpose in life is to help people. So if I can't help you, I'll get you to somebody who can. Awesome. That's, that's freaking awesome. I love it. So before we part, any last words for the audience, like piece of advice that you could leave them with? So that makes them think and go, hmm, I liked what you just said. I would say, don't fear the unknown. Take the steps forward and move forward and ask for help. I think a lot of people don't ask for help because they think it's not out there. They tried it and it didn't work. And I would say, keep asking for help or keep giving help. Like there's lives at stake. Do whatever we can to help more people be there for more people. And if you haven't seen or heard somebody, reach out. They might be in distress and we don't have eyes on people like we used to. We don't have that sort of connection like we used to. Reach out and see if they need help and help them. And if you're that person that's in isolation, call someone or reach out and get the help you need. Absolutely. Like Angie said, if you, anybody's listening and they need help, if I can't help you, I, I'll get you to the right people. And you heard Angie say it. If she can't help you, she'll find somebody. Just how it works, right? But don't be afraid to ask for help. That's actually a sign. Yep. In my book, that's a sign of courage when you're reaching out for help. So Angie, 100%. I thank you so much for coming on and being a guest. I had a great time with you and I'm sure we'll have you on again. I'll have you on again. But um, yes, thank you for such an awesome, awesome interview. Thank you, Max, and I can't wait to get you on my podcast, too. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs>